listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, June 18th, 2023 edition of Labor Express. Do you all remember back to the uh, fall of 2021 and the whole concept of striketober? All the excitement or the so-called strike wave breaking out that year. Regular listeners to Labor Express will no doubt remember that in 2022, I quickly abandoned the practice of naming every month uh, strike this or strike that. I think the last time maybe that I made that reference would have been strike strike February in 2022. Um but you also remember that at the end of last year or beginning of this year, uh, despite the lack of attention to this fact in the mainstream media, I made it clear on the program that the significant rise in militant labor fight back that we saw in 2021 continued in 2022. Actually, it in many ways was even higher in 2022, and that turned out to be an, uh, a, an important year as well. Well, summer or fall of 2023 looks like it very well could eclipse both previous years, and the possibility of this being a truly historic year for strikes seems more likely each day. I'll explain what I mean at the top of tonight's episode. After that, some exciting news for Chicago teachers is one of the new Chicago mayor, Brandon Johnson's first major moves post-inauguration is to grant the 12 weeks paid parental leave that previous mayor, Lori Lightfoot, denied the teachers. And in the second half of tonight's program, the state of migrants' rights in the U.S. and Chicago is a city leading the nation in welcoming asylees. So what do I mean about a summer-fall 2023 strike wave? Well, no doubt you all have some idea already of what I'm talking about. We've been talking up the possibility of a strike by the Teamsters at UPS in August for months. If it happens, it'll be the largest strike in the private sector in the U.S. for many, many decades and has the potential to have a massive impact on the economy both uh, during the strike and after. The months-long contract fight at UPS entered a new phase this past week when the Teamsters members voted 97% to authorize a strike if needed. This was largely an official acknowledgement of what had already been in the works for many months. We won't go into more details tonight on uh, this topic with the uh, UPS and the Teamsters, but certainly we'll be doing more on that in upcoming episodes, so stay tuned. We've also been discussing the possibility of a strike by the UAW at the big three automakers in September. This would be another massive strike with economic repercussions economy-wide. We'll hear more on that situation in a bit from the newly elected uh, reform slate president of the UAW, Sean Fain. On previous episodes, we covered the ongoing strike by the Writers Guild of America, which has already shut down much of Hollywood's film and TV industry. Well, that effort received a major boost and may soon enter a new phase as SAG-AFTRA, which represents the actors, has now authorized a strike if they don't have a fair contract by the end of this month. So the actors may soon join the writers on the picket lines, effectively shutting down most of what's left of the entertainment industry. Let's hear from the actors about why they chose to endorse the strike if necessary. The following is a message to the members that the union put out just before the strike authorization vote last week that called for a yes vote. You're going to hear voices here of many actors you no doubt know. I'll name just a uh, half dozen or so of, of the more well-known ones represented. You have uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Gene Smart, uh, Lucas Gage, Sam Richardson, Kamal Niajani, and uh, Carl Pena, Bob uh, Balaban. Just a few of the ones that you probably will recognize. Uh, there's more than a dozen others. Maybe you can kind of play a game with yourself as, as you listen to this and see who you can identify. Hi, I'm a proud member of SAG-AFTRA. And I'm asking you to join me in voting yes on the strike authorization. A yes vote is not a vote to strike. It just means that we give the national board the power to strike if the AMPTP does not give our members the essential contract improvements that they need. It is simply a tool in our arsenal. SAG-AFTRA represents 160,000 film and television actors, journalists, radio personalities, recording artists, singers, voice actors, background actors, and more. And we all need a contract that will increase contributions to our benefit plans and safeguard members from shrinking income and reduced residuals. We also need protections against the unregulated use of our likeness and voices in AI. This negotiation is unlike any before. The economic survival of our members, the survival of our very profession, is at stake. Our employers have increased their profits by tens of billions. While using their power to slash compensation and residuals and undermine our working conditions. But we too have power if, if we're willing to use it. No one wants to strike and we know that a strike can sound scary. It is scary. But what is far scarier is continuing to work under the conditions that many of our guild are working under right now or even worse. 
And now is our chance to change that. The higher the turnout and the higher the percentage of yes votes, the more leverage we have to get a fair contract for all of our members. Our SAG-AFTRA representatives need our power and our voice in the negotiating room with them. We are a guild, and a guild stands together. A guild stands together. A guild stands together. So join us in voting yes by Monday, June 5th. Join us in voting yes by Monday, June 5th. Join us in voting yes by June 5th. Go vote yes. And vote yes they did by almost 98%. I'll post a video version of that message up at laborexpress.org so you can see how many of those voices you actually got right. The strike mobilization story does not end there. On our last episode, we discussed the ILWU, the International Longshore Workers Union, work stoppages as their contract negotiations dragged out. I point out that a simultaneous strike by the uh, at the West Coast ports by the ILWU and at UPS would be really huge and historic. Well, that situation is a bit murky now. The Canadian division of the ILWU just voted to authorize the strike, but the ILWU here in the U.S. has reached a tentative agreement with the ports this past week. That agreement will need to be voted on by the members, so we won't know until next month if a West Coast port strike is off the table. Here is ILWU President Willie Adams explaining the situation. Good day, brothers and sisters. I am IOW International President Willie Adams. I want to first thank our negotiating committee who has been up here for over 13 months, away from their family, banging day in and day out to bring home a fair and the best contract we can for our membership. I want to thank you, the rank and file, the heart and soul of our union, for your patience, your fortitude, and being very, very focused. We could have not done it without your help. But I just want to talk about a few things today, our process. There's a lot of negative media going on out there about our process. For over 90 years, we have probably the most democratic and fairest process in how we come to a conclusion in bringing the contract to our membership. Next month, we will have a Longshore Caucus, which is the highest governing body in the Longshore Division. And the delegates there will see the contract in its entirety. We will discuss, we will debate. And then at that point, they will decide if this comes to you, the rank and file. And we will be going through the contract and you'll be asking questions, you'll be debating it in our fair and true democratic process. And you will vote it up or you will vote it down, but it will always be at the hands of the membership because the membership in this union is the boss. I would just ask you to continue to be patient. Let the process work. We will get there on this journey. Everyone on this negotiating committee understands this contract belongs to the rank and file of our great and mighty union. In closing, let's remember and we stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters led by Rob Ashton and IOW Canada as they themselves are fighting for a fair and equitable con contract as we have also been doing. Stay strong. Let's stay focused. We will all be in on the finish together. An injury to one is an injury to all. Long live the mighty and the powerful ILWU. When I started this discussion tonight of a possible summer-fall 2023 strike wave, I mentioned the situation with the UAW at the Big Three Automakers as a critical part of this picture. Under the new reform leadership, it's clear that the UAW is gearing up for a fight. Earlier this month, UAW launched an intensified contract campaign. The following is audio from a video released by the UAW expressing why a strike might be necessary, followed by new union president Sean Fain talking about several recently won strikes by the UAW and how the union is getting ready to fight the automakers. We're going into bargaining with clear priorities. We are united in the fight to end tears. Win back coal. Make sure our jobs are secure as this industry undergoes a total transformation towards electrification. We took concessions in hard times. Our families and our members made sacrifices to save these companies. Over and over, they closed a plant in the U.S. and moved the work out of the country. Inflation has gone up three times as much as our wages in the past three and a half years. 
that's unacceptable and unsustainable. The big three have made just under a quarter of a trillion dollars in profits in North America between 2013 and 2022. And auto workers would have to work nonstop for hundreds of years to come close to their earnings what any of the big three CEOs are getting in a single year. The companies know what our members deserve and they can't afford to give it to us. So the choice of what happens is up to them. We're living in a defining moment that will impact generations to come. Corporate America and the billionaire class have made a killing over the last decade while the working class has struggled to get by. That ends here and now. Good morning, everybody. Uh, first, I want to recognize some of our biggest fights going on right now. 2,400 researchers and postdocs at the University of Washington with Local 4121 in Region 6 went on strike last week. They held strong and got the Secretary of Education to honor their picket line and cancel his comm commencement speech. Um, now they have a tentative agreement. There's 500 workers who make vehicle batteries at Clarius with Local 12 in Region 2B. They also came to a tentative agreement after six weeks on the picket line fighting for a decent standard of living. Uh, recently this week, workers at Constellium who make parts for Ford with Local 174 in Region 1A held the line and they were able to secure a tentative agreement. In Region 9, Workers with Local 2326 at West Rock Packaging Facility in New Jersey just entered their second week on the picket line. Meanwhile, our brothers and sisters at Master Lock in Milwaukee are fighting the company's plan to close their plant after 100 years, all in the name of corporate greed. As you can see, our members are ready to fight back from coast to coast. And those of you holding the line out there, I want you to know your international union has your back 100%. From higher education to manufacturing, we're up against employers who don't care who they hurt if they can save a penny. And it does hurt. Our members are out there struggling to get by, living paycheck to paycheck. And I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be on government assistance. We need to set a new standard that lifts up all of our members we need dignity on and off the job. These, all these employers, they can afford it. This week I wrote a column in the Detroit News and we put out a video, which you just watched, both highlighting the extreme profits the big three automakers have made in the past 10 years. Ford, GM, and Stellantis have made a quarter of a trillion dollars in the past decade. Those profits are made off the work and sacrifice that our members deliver every day. We took cuts in hard times to save these companies. We had our job security provisions and cost of living adjustments that were suspended. Wages were reduced and have remained stagnant. We lost pensions. We lost post-retirement health care. Plants are still closing and jobs have disappeared. Now business is booming, so it's time we set things right. So I want to take a moment to honor all of our members who are on strike right now fighting to raise a standard for all of us. And I wanted to let you know that we've got your back today and we're gonna need your support tomorrow. If the big three don't do what's right by our members, then we're gonna do what we have to do and we're gonna do it together. We're in the process of changing the culture of this union from a reactionary, defensive union to an aggressive and offensive-minded union. Over the last 60 days, and going forward, you're going to see the membership and the leadership in the media. And by whatever means, we're going to be speaking about our issues and our cause. So for too long, our past leaders have been silent, and we can't sit back and let the companies continue to control the dialogue and define the issues and ultimately label us as a greedy union worker. That's what, you know, that's what they've always done. That's a path they've always followed. And we all know that's not true. A great majority of our members are struggling to get by. So we have to change the narrative by using facts. And we have the facts on our side. These companies have made a quarter of a trillion dollars over the last decade. While during that same period, conditions for our members have remained stagnant, 
plants have closed and it's been uprooting the, and tearing apart the lives of our members. This is unacceptable and we're going to call it what it is, corporate greed. So we're launching a contract campaign to energize and focus the membership and the public on our issues and to unite us in a common cause. To sum it up, we're doing big things and we're going to use every tool in the toolbox to deliver for our membership. I also want to update our members on some of the changes that are happening in our union. Uh, your International Executive Board met last week at Black Lake to discuss the business of our union. At that meeting, I provided a President's Report which summarized our work over the past couple months and some of the changes we've made. During my campaign, I promised greater transparency from our union and that I would communicate more regularly with all of you. So I want to take an opportunity to share my President's Report with you. So, as you all know, I was sworn into office a little more than two months ago, and it's been a nonstop whirlwind of activity since then. I'm really proud of what we've already accomplished, and I'm excited about the work ahead. We got a big task before us, and our members are excited about a clean, member-driven, fighting UAW. That means we have to make some important changes as to how we operate. Some of those changes are already in motion. In early April, I announced that our public relations department was being transformed into the UAW communications department. That transformation reflects my administration's commitment to a more member-driven communications, to more transparency with the membership, and to a more aggressive communication strategy with the press and the public. Over the last two months, we've given our union's public face a whole new look on social media and on our website. We're featuring more members' stories and members' voices. We've retooled our website and redesigned Solidarity Magazine to be a lot more dynamic and exciting. We're putting out more videos about the issues and the stories that matter to our members. We're holding Facebook Live updates to provide a direct two-way forum for communicating with our members all over the country. And we recently held the UAW's first union-wide town hall last month. Aside from how we talk directly to the membership, we're also changing how we talk to the public and the companies. The companies have never been bashful about using the media to share their often misleading perspective on bargaining and the state of the industry. So we're going to speak with the media so we can make sure our union's views and our members' voices are heard and understood. We've also made big changes in how we do politics. Uh, with CAP under my administration, we're going to be organizing elected officials rather than being organized by them. Uh, Secretary Treasurer Mock and myself visited Washington, D.C. in April, and we were very clear with the Biden administration and with Congress. We told them that plant closures and idlings, like at Ford's Romeo Engine Plant, Stellantis' Belvedere Assembly Plant, and GM's Lordstown Assembly Plant, have turned our members' lives upside down. They forced our members to choose between taking a buyout, retiring, or uprooting their families and our communities by transferring to another facility. And I've repeatedly emphasized the need for any EV shift to do right by the workers who make the auto industry run. We will not stand by and allow workers to be left behind. If the government's going to funnel billions of dollars in taxpayer money to these companies, our members must be compensated with top wages and benefits. A just transition must include standards for our members and future workers. We're also putting members directly in front of policymakers so they can hear firsthand from workers about how the issues that we're fighting on affect their lives. Um, for example, recently uh, we brought the bargaining team from Altium to Washington, D.C. Uh, they were able to talk to legislators uh, you know, about and explain to them how the company has to bargain a fair contract. You know, they, they talked about issues such as exposure to chemicals that aren't yet regulated by OSHA and how employees were getting sick and passing out. U.S. taxpayers have and are going to continue to funnel over a billion dollars a year to Altium despite their paying poverty wages and having horrifying health and safety conditions. We're also taking a new approach to organizing. We're investing in strategic campaigns to build worker power in targeted industries and states. That means setting clear organizing targets, clear campaigns with a plan, 
and then resourcing those campaigns with teams of, you know, from research, from communications, education, and CAP, and other departments that can carry out the work for the long haul. Our goal over the next few years is to bring thousands and thousands of workers from all sectors into our union. We're going to continue building on the extraordinary success we've had in higher education, as well as the recent successes in parts organizing. And we're going to do what it takes to win in the new electric battery and vehicle plants, as well as in non-union assembly plants. Another shift we're making in our organizing approach is having international staff organizers stay on the campaigns through the first contract. That's the approach we're using at Altium and the newly organized Yangfeng plant in Kansas City. And this is critically important because em employers often see contract negotiations as their second chance to break the union. It's not enough for workers to win their union. They also have to win a strong contract. Sean Fain had a lot more to say in that uh, online address, particularly about reform efforts within the UAW, how uh, the new leadership is reforming the union, restructuring it to make it more democratic uh, and more responsive to the membership. Um, I could not include that all on this episode. It just wasn't enough time. But I will include a longer version of his comments on the podcast version of this program. Certainly, we'll continue to cover all these current potential strikes here on Labor Express Radio, so please keep tuning in. You may get a front row seat to history if you do. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. While elections have consequences, it can be easy to dismiss electoral politics when year after year, decade after decade, in our limited two-party du duopoly system, so corrupted by corporate power, we see little change that benefits the working class. But it can always get worse. <laughs> That's important to remember. And sometimes, once in a while, when we fight back and elect individuals and movements that actually represent our interests, we actually make gains. There was a massive effort by the Chicago Labor Movement, especially the Chicago Teachers Union, to get one of their own, Brandon Johnson, elected mayor of Chicago this past spring. And electing folks rooted in the labor movement can make a difference. You might remember that earlier in the year, we covered one of former Mayor Lori Lightfoot's final F-U's, I'll put it that way, to the teachers union when she first offered and then yanked a proposal to include teachers in the city's expanded parental leave policy. Well, Mayor Johnson made one of his first major moves as the new mayor, the granting of 12 weeks paid paternity leave to members of the CTU. The following is a press conference at which Mayor Johnson made the announcement You'll hear the mayor first, followed by Stacey Davis-Gates, president of the Chicago Teachers Union, and two rank-and-file CTU members. Word of caution, for the first 30 seconds and later toward the end of this segment for another 30 seconds or so, there's a really annoying high-pitched whine noise that came from the sound system at the press conference. I did my best with uh, editing technology to reduce this noise, but was only partially successful. But I hope you will continue listening regardless, especially during that second 30 seconds of noise towards the end of the interview, because what the rank-and-file teacher is saying there is really important. It's really uh, important and moving stuff, so please uh, stay tuned and suffer through that little little bit of a whine. Today we are proud to announce that the Chicago Public Schools will be developing an expanded paid parental leave policy for employees that will go into effect the start of the 2023-2024 school year. With the creation of this policy, our teachers and school leaders can not only show up for their students, but for their own families during a very critical time in their lives. The city's existing paid parental leave policy ensures that all city employees have 12 weeks of paid parental leave. My administration is taking that policy one step further so that CPS educators can also receive the benefits of this historic and progressive policy. Currently, CPS entitles birthing parents to six to eight weeks of short-term disability, um, while non-birthing parents receive two weeks of paid leave. The new CPS policy promises to closely align with the city's policy, giving 12 full weeks of paid leave to both birthing and non-birthing parents, and applies to employees, whether they are growing their family through birth, adoption, or foster care. Additionally, surrogates will be eligible for up to eight weeks of paid leave for recovery purposes under this benefit. 
This 12 weeks will be crucial to new parents who need the necessary time to bond with their newborn, their newly adopted, and fostered children. This policy is a huge win for CPS employees and parents for our entire city. Now, for one thing, this policy furthers our commitment to creating a Chicago that puts the needs of workers and families first. Young people looking into careers in education can be assured that CPS honors its employees' needs and we aren't making them choose between a paycheck and starting a family. Furthermore, this policy will greatly improve mental and physical health outcomes for new mothers, parents, families, and newborns. This is important for all mothers, but particularly women of color who experience higher rates of adverse outcomes related to pregnancy. Study after study shows that a mom and baby do better when they're given the time to heal and grow together. This policy will also strengthen our economy. When CPS employees have adequate time and support to take care of themselves and their families, this will ultimately make it would ensure that once they return from leave, they come back refreshed, energized, and ready to lead the next generation of young Chicagoans into success. This policy also ensures that birthing parents, particularly women, don't feel pressure or this need to quit their jobs to become a parent. An investment in our families is an investment in the vitality of all of our communities. I'm thrilled to begin this work and look forward to um, this parenting policy that the Board of Education will approve. I'm even more thrilled that we will get this done in partnership between the Chicago Public Schools and the Chicago Teachers Union. All of us working together, all of us working together, will continue to make our public school system stronger for teachers and students. You know, I'm kind of stuck in the moment for a second because this is a transformative moment, um, not just for the young people who are in the Chicago Public Schools, but the entire city of Chicago where we have partnership across the board. And I want to appreciate the resilience of a movement of people who made this possible and to just say thank you to them. Um, parental leave is a big deal for someone like me. I'm a mother of three. I am also a high school history teacher. And I remember the hardship that my family um, had to undergo in order to be a mom. Um, we're at the most um, transformative time of my life. I was also begging my parents to help me pay bills. That should not be the life of a new, um, a new family. That being said, um, I'm very happy that as a women's rights organization, of which the Chicago Teachers Union is because nearly 80% of the members are women, this policy makes sense, and it should never be at a negotiating table. In fact, this should be the norm for every woman who works in any industry, any parent that works in any industry, to nurture um, their child, but to also have an opportunity to heal their bodies. Like Mary Johnson said, black women suffer um, mortality rates that should not exist a mortality rate that is not a statistic in my family. In fact, my niece was a victim of that. So this means a lot to me personally and to our union. Finally, we talk about recruiting and retaining quality educators. This is a step in the right direction for those of us who want to become educators, that you have a school district that is willing to see you as a whole person and is willing to support your personhood. So to say that I am almost speechless by this moment is an understatement. And to say that I am grateful for the leadership of Mayor Johnson and CEO Martinez is equally an understatement. I'm thankful for this moment. I am glad that we got here together and our members, our members, I appreciate them the most. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I am one of those members, and it's an honor to be representing 
uh, my colleagues today on the first day of summer. My name is Tiffany Childress-Price. I am a 16th year veteran. I teach at South Shore International College Prep. While teaching is one of the great joys of my life, I have to say that being the mother of two amazing boys, Solomon and Elias, tops that. They just wrapped up second and fourth grade, and I'm immensely grateful to all the teachers and staff who cared and nurtured them this year. Becoming a parent was the best thing that happened to my teaching practice. The way that I have seen other people's children has transformed. My empathy for struggling children and struggling families has now become a personal experience. So it's my conviction, my strongest conviction, that parenting and teaching cannot be in competition. I think about our value in Chicago Public Schools to care for the whole child. This guide, this value guides my everyday practice. Today I ask, what about caring for the whole teacher? Our former policies punish teachers for becoming parents. Last fall, I watched my colleague and good friend, a veteran of 15 years, and one of the most excellent science teachers, come back from giving birth with just 0.25 days of sick leave left in her bank. And I watched her struggle with the decision to work without pay in order to take her newborn to a wellness check. As a black woman who had birthing complications myself, I know the question, how do I not die in childbirth? As we as black women have disproportionately higher maternal mortality rates, we should not survive childbirth to ask, how will I now heal, feed, or nurse my baby? How can I have protected time for doctor's appointments for both myself and my child just because we're teachers? Both the UN Convention of the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women and the International Labor Organization recognize family leave as a human right because this truly is an issue of human rights. For decades, we have been sharing our stories, asking to be heard. Our teaching core is 80% women. So while this is a win for working women, it's really a win for families. This 12-week leave affirms our humanity. It affirms that becoming a parent does not disqualify us from teaching, counseling, and serving students of Chicago. Thank you, Mayor Johnson, for seeing us, for hearing us, and for affirming our humanity. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Hello. <laughs> uh, my name is Jiminy Afori. I'm a teacher of 15 years in Chicago Public Schools, uh, and I'm also at South Shore International College Prep. Uh, so I'm really not the type of person that you're going to find at a political event or doing public speaking like this. Uh, I'm not a particularly powerful speaker, but I'm a mother, I'm a parent, and I'm a teacher, and you'd be hard-pressed to find someone anywhere that has not had a profound impact in their life from the presence or absence of a parent, a mother, or a teacher in their life. You can ask any therapist or friend. I'm pretty sure that could be confirmed. Um, so, but this topic compelled me to step into a new role and to speak on behalf of all the moms and the parents out there. So my journey to motherhood was, like most people, very challenging. I had more miscarriages than I care to discuss, and the majority of those miscarriages occurred while I was working. Excuse me. my administrator at the time picked me up off the floor in the bathroom to support me through one of those. Um, and supported me in a way that I will feel indebted to her forever. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that she was there at that moment, but sad for everyone else because I'm not the only one, is the reality of what we know about becoming a parent. Um, truthfully, when I was having my children, we didn't have maternity leave or parental leave. I had to do FMLA. I had to use all my sick days, similar to what Tiffany described. And God forbid my child ever got sick. I had to compete with what felt like the whole city to get doctor's appointments in times that wasn't in conflict with work. Um, and I was so happy that my pregnancies were healthy that I did not even realize that my leave time was held against me when I came back to work. I ultimately left the field to take care of my children when I had my second child. It just became too complicated for us. 
Family leave is a human right, and it stabilizes societies. Healthy societies have healthy homes, and parental leave is the foundation for those healthy relationships at home. Like many educators, I tried to plan my pregnancies around summers off, but I quickly learned that that's just not the reality for most women. I also realized I'm not the only one impacted by this reality. As a mom, I wanted to speak to the experience of other mothers, and it wasn't until I became a mother myself that I was able to hear about other parents' stories and how difficult the realities of becoming a parent actually was, from infertility, surrogacy, postpartum depression, adoptive parents, which is limited to 10 days, which is just criminal, IVF to over 35, thank you so much, pregnancies, Six weeks is just not enough time, no matter what path you had to take to become a parent. The expansion to 12 weeks of paid leave would have transformed my life. It would have enabled me to stay in the field. For me and my colleagues who are in similar situations, it would have given us better time to bond with our children and to be our best selves when we return to work. The additional burdens of navigating a healthcare system that is riddled with racial disparities is enough to worry about. If parents are able to fully connect and care for newborns, it diminishes sickness, it avoids disruptions to work schedules, and avoids mental health crises that so many young people are experiencing. I'm so glad this expansion is taking place. Thank you, Mayor Johnson, for taking the time to prioritize parental leave as one of your first topics of work. <laughs> You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. We need to get a station ID break, but when we return, migrants' rights in the U.S. and Chicago is a beacon of hope for asylees. So please make sure to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. Regular listeners to Labor Express Radio know that our program is a long-time relationship with Building Bridges, your community and labor report on WBAI in New York City, and that we frequently share audio with them and vice versa. So it caught my attention when one of their recent episodes featured a title uh, that was Chicago, a model city welcoming immigrants and asylum seekers. I must say that filled me with pride as I know that what they're saying is certainly true. Chicago has mobilized to welcome asylees, especially as Republican politicians in Texas and Florida have kidnapped migrants and shipped them to places like Chicago with no concern for their well-being. But there's something even more special in hearing an acknowledgement like that from our friends in New York City. If you're a lifelong Chicagoan, you know that uh, there's always this rivalry between Chicago and New York City. At least it, it's, uh, it, there's a rivalry on the Chicago side. The New Yorkers tend to ignore us and so don't even acknowledge the rivalry. But uh, to hear New Yorkers praise Chicago's efforts really means something, and it's well-earned praise. So I had to air for you this segment from Building Bridges. Now, the discussion of Chicago's asylee welcoming policy is actually only a small part of the whole interview, and it's towards the end of this segment, but the rest of it is just as relevant and important. The other exciting part of this segment is that uh, Ken Nash and Miriam Rosenberg over at Building Bridges are interviewing here our old friends at Alianza Americas. They used to be known as NALOC, the preeminent immigrant-led migrant organization in the United States, who we've featured at least a dozen times here on previous episodes of Labor Express. Helena Olea of Alonza Americas discusses a host of topics in this interview, including the current legal situation in the U.S. for asylum seekers and the factors that force migrants to seek protections in the U.S. The segment actually opens up, too, in a unique way with uh, part of the poem that's at the base of the Statue of Liberty written by Emma Lazarus, the, uh, the socialist uh, that actually wrote that those words. So it's kind of an interesting piece. I'm Ken Nash. And I'm Mimi Rosenberg. And we're Building Bridges. Indeed we are. We're going to be looking at the urgent call to end migrant detention and strengthen asylum protections. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name 
mother of exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed, to me. I lift my light beside the golden door. Emma Lazarus. Well, you're listening to Building Bridges with Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg. And we are now looking at, ha, we lift our light beside the golden door. The huddled mass is yearning to breathe free. Gorgeous, beautiful, wonderful sentiment. Ah, the core values, but the promises that are unrealized of this country. Well, that takes us directly to the wonderful director of programs, Helena Olea who is with Alianza Americas, one of the largest and most important immigrants' rights organization in the country. And we're about to talk about an urgent call to end, oh, migrant detention and strengthen asylum protections and something good that's happening for migrants and asylum seekers in the Windy City. Elena, we really welcome you and uh, compliment you always on the enormously important and strenuous work that you do for the migrant community, for those seeking asylum. Thank you for the invitation. I'm very glad to be uh, joining the program. Well, I want to start with uh, something that uh, very seldom gets raised, and that is the issue of, shall we say, forced migration. What are the responsibilities, what are the issues, the policies and practices, really, of this government, of this country, that too often are forcing people to migrate? And it's perfectly fine, as far as I'm concerned, for people to traverse borders, to seek material benefit. People have to live. And artificial creation of nation states is not the issue. But within that, Let's look at the U.S. and what is forcing the more recent, let's say the last 10 years, of migratory uh, activity and also people seeking asylum. Well, I think that's a very important uh, question, and we seldomly ask ourselves that question. We tend to look at migration from within a country and think about the people who are already in the country, but we forget to ask ourselves what is driving people to leave their own countries. And I think the first premise is people in general like to live in their own countries, within their communities, with their families, in their environments, within their culture. And so the decision to leave is really a a measure of last resort, an effort to try to find the safety and the dignity that they are not finding at home. It's a desperate action. Most of the time we see that migrants are regularly the, a group of very strong individuals, curious, adventurous, courageous, who decide to take great risks uh, in search of a better life. And I think that that's, that's crucial. Now, the people, the, the policies that are driving people to leave are based on the one hand on the economic uh, model that it has been put in place where some countries are producing commodities that are sold at very low prices uh, for the benefit of industrialized societies. And I think that that's really at the core of the reason, the, the economic situation in most countries uh, of Latin America who are still a part of a, this model of selling commodities who have not been able to develop strong uh, industries and so they are really um, very uh, at a very volatile state Uh, the pandemic is a reflection of how weak those states are in latin america for instance lost all of the progress it had made in a decade in its fight against poverty 
And we could see, you know, two years after the pandemic started, just to give you an example, children were only beginning to return to school in Honduras. So all of uh, the children schooled in, in public school in Honduras are going to have a two-year gap in their education, for instance. And it's things like that which set whole countries uh, behind. Uh, also, we need to think and understand uh, the U.S. foreign policy and its impact in the region. To give you an example, in the case of Venezuela, it, the policies that have been put in place have really impacted on the economy of Venezuela, but the economic sanctions put in place by the United States have further uh, destroyed the Venezuelan economy. And it's precisely the lack of jobs, the lack of resources, the lack of food, what is has driven over six million Venezuelans out of the country trying to seek a a life of dignity elsewhere, both in South America, and many are now looking into and trying to get to the to North America, particularly to the U.S. And what would life. you... So it's a combination mm. of policies and practices that have been taken, you know, uh, decades that are impacting on many of these And Helena, what would you say also about the issues of uh, U.S. seeking he- hegemony in the world and certainly over uh, the continent? And they're very uh, militarist, imperialist, if you will. The, there's the economic component, but there is a war mentality and an anti-left uh, posture that has sought to destroy uh, the uh, indigenous governments of the progressive states uh, as they have arisen for decades and decades now throughout Latin America. Is that also, uh, how does that come into play in driving people uh, from the their lands, from their heritage, from their culture? It continues to be a very important factor. The U.S. has continued providing some form of military aid, training, and even equipment to different countries uh, in Latin America at different moments to fight against guerrillas, most recently to fight against organized crime, particularly drug trafficking. Uh, And there are great concerns in terms of the human rights abuses that are being perpetrated by those police and military forces who are receiving that equipment and that training. And that continues to be part of the challenges uh, and the problems in the region. I think it's also important to underscore that, uh, as you were mentioning, it's like barely the Cold War has left Latin America. Now we are in this very difficult position in which uh, Latin American countries are being pressured to decide whether they they want stronger ties with China or they want stronger ties with the United States, and they are in desperate need of resources uh, and economic aid. And so, in some cases, they just, uh, you know, will <laughs> will get closer to any country that is willing to to help them with any form of resources. Title Forty Two has lapsed. That was tied in with the pandemic. And we've reverted to Title VIII. How does that affect migration? Well, it, I think it's a very important question because Title 42, in principle, had closed the border to asylum seekers that were trying to enter uh, the U.S. through through its southern border. And this, of course, we have to keep in mind, are the, the poorest who do not have a visa and who most of them travel by foot uh, or different forms of, of transportation by road to finally get to the U.S. There had been some exceptions created, uh, particularly during the Biden administration, but the majority of asylum seekers were prevented from entering the country. Now, we are back to Title Eight, which is the regular immigration policies of the country. However, a new asylum rule has been put in place and is being implemented by the Biden administration, which is heavily restricting the ability of individuals to enter the U.S. to seek uh, asylum. Briefly, they need to um, obtain an appointment via an, a phone application that's called uh, CBP-1. Only at this moment that has been increased, only 1,250 appointments are granted every day. So there are thousands of individuals in the Mexican side of the border waiting 
uh, trying every day to get an appointment. They can't schedule appointments ahead of time, so it's it's really like a lottery. They have every day to click on the phones, hoping that they are, they are able to obtain that appointment. And they are waiting in desperate conditions, both uh, from a humanitarian perspective and also from a protection perspective. There are, there are great risks to their life and to their safety while they are waiting in Mexico. And that is definitely a problem. There are a few exceptions, and I, I think it's important to point out, that have been granted for uh, individuals who can seek parole. And that implies that they need a sponsor in the U.S. And uh, through that sponsor, they are allowed to enter the country. And those are individuals from Venezuela, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Cuba. Those individuals can be paroled, and this has been become an opportunity for those countries. But I think it's also important to underscore many individuals are waiting and are desperately seeking a sponsor so that they are allowed to come to the U.S. Now, I know that the approach of Alianza Americas has not been, okay, we've got to get, which we all want. We don't all want, but many of us want, and people have fought for for years, which is comprehensive immigration reform. So what they've done is they've kind of parsed out strategic issues relevant to the moment. So let's look at uh, some of the issues of uh, the groups that have come here, such as the uh, Haitians and others who have come in catastrophic uh, situations and their status and the likelihood of them being tossed back into utter chaos and deprivation, uh, the issue of of DACA, etc. So if you could parse out for us a couple of what you think are the strategic issues that have been on the agenda of groups like Alianza and in the leadership groups like uh, Alianza America for what are the things that we need to advocate for with people such as yourself. Again, uh, we're speaking with Helena Olea, who is the director of programs of Alianza Americas. Well, I think, yeah, we have, we don't think that, we don't believe that the strategy of a trying to advocate for a comprehensive immigration reform has been successful. We have been trying that for 20 years and that has definitely not worked. So we have identified specific policies that address the needs of specific communities and we think that this is a way to try to pass specific measures one at a time and trying to address a you know, some of the greatest challenges of the of the immigration system. So I can name a few. There are the there's the community of individuals who were granted what is called temporary protective status TPS. The idea is that this is a measure that allows those individuals who sign up into that program not to be deported back to their country and they are granted a work authorization. But this is a temporary measure that needs to be renewed uh, periodically. So these individuals have. Some of them, for instance, from El Salvador, have had TPS status for 20 years. They have lived under this temporary status. But in 20 years, you grow up, you fall in love, you create families, you uh, create businesses, you get a mortgage and a home. People try to move forward. So they have lived, even though their status is temporary, they really have created roots and families in the U.S. So there is the need to create a legislative path that allows those individuals with TPS to uh, request a a permanent residence in the U.S. so that they can become uh, green card holders and they can think that they have their future safe in the United States. That's one specific policy we are advocating for, as well as a similar path for those individuals who arrive to the country as children and who were benefited with the DACA program that was put in place by the Obama administration. That is a second group also that's very concerned as a result of the litigation and the efforts by the Trump administration to put an end both to DACA, to the DACA program, as well as to the TPS program. So we believe that those individuals who, for all practical purposes, have been in the U.S. for a long time are Americans, still American. They need uh, to be granted a, a permanent uh, resident status. We are also advocating for other types of temporary measures to 
uh, or sorry, other type of measures to address the specific needs of other communities who have also been in the country for a long time in irregular status, but that have also created families, for instance, individuals of Mexi Mexican citizenship who have not had access to this TPS status, even though many, the, la the largest proportion of DACA holders are young, uh, are individuals who arrived to the U.S. as children from Mexico. And there are other measures that would definitely create a huge impact, such as allowing individuals, once they have filed for a, an asylum application, to immediately obtain a work authorization. Currently, they have to wait five months to file for that work authorization. We believe that if individuals were able to work early on, they would be able to become economically independent sooner, and that would definitely be an important measure. Just to mention a few of the measures we're advocating for, as well, of course, as to end immigration detention, because we believe that's definitely not the way to handle immigration flow. So we are dealing with people who, uh, as you indicated earlier, are uh, forced to migrate uh, as a result of climate change, violence, political instability, uh, many of which uh, occur and create humanitarian crisis as a result of the very policies that are driven by the, the capitalist system, by the U.S. system and the U.S. system for uh, hegemony, which is most often achieved uh, by virtue of, of, of war and uh, economic uh, control and exploitation. Now, with this, what do we say about how do you rate the Biden administration relative to the Trump administration? Because it's looking more and more fearful for some of us that the administration is willing to tolerate. Could it be again, since we were earlier talking about children, the separation of families and children? What should we understand and pressure this administration on, aside from the things that you were talking about in terms of uh, getting, uh, making sure that uh, people are able to stay here and uh, are permanentized and get work authorizations? I think the greatest challenge has been the fact that the Trump administration succeeded in establishing a narrative that it, immigrants are not welcome into the U.S., that they represent some type of danger, uh, and that immigration has to be halted at all means and strategies possible. And even though the Biden administration has changed its rhetoric and it's not demonizing immigrants, it has not really developed a very strong uh, counter-narrative that continues to highlight the importance and the contributions that migrants make to the U.S. economy, the fact that we create families in the U.S., and that we are a positive uh, force uh, to this country. And so that's why every single uh, immigration measure uh, is developed with a lot of fear of the backlash of the Republican Party. And unfortunately, this administration has not been able to create that momentum and that stance insisting of why it is pro-immigrant. And that's really where the, the narrative battle is lost, and that's where we need a stronger strategy. And I think the fact that we don't have another a counter-narrative in favor of migration is what has not did not allow the first two years of the Biden administration, when it had some uh, political capital and greater leverage in Congress, to try to pass some of these measures that I mentioned earlier. And that's why right now we have very timid measures. And some of the policies that I described uh, regarding the end of Title 42, uh, like that asylum rule, are really in an effort to try to appease those anti uh, that very strong anti-immigrant uh, sentiment. And I think that that's really the core of the problem, that we need to acknowledge that the U.S. economy needs uh, migrants, and also that the U.S. is a country of migrants and that migrants are welcome and that contribute to build this nation. Perhaps helping us out in con constructing a counter-narrative is the action that the Chicago City Council played, signed by the mayor, in welcoming newly arrived migrants. Could you tell us about 
what they're doing and how that's working out and whether other people are picking up on that. Yeah, and whether that Windy City will blow its good breeze over to the rest of us. Yes, well, we were very happy to see that in response to the measures undertaken by the governors of, of Texas and Arizona, who are busing immigrants to the city of Chicago, what the, the, city, uh, the city council approved was a specific budget of $51 million acknowledging that the city needs resources so that it can offer housing, food, uh, transportation, and legal services to the migrants who have already arrived to the city and to the ones that it foresees that it's coming in in the future. The city uh, is facing a number of challenges in terms of having the spaces and the resources to respond to these needs of these newcomers. And so... Uh, we were very pleased to see the city council under the leadership of the new mayor, uh, Brandon Johnson, to adopt this, may, this measure, underscoring that it's the, the city needs to be able to address the needs of its population and to address the needs of newcomers and understand that they represent an opportunity uh, for the city. And I think it's important that we see this measure undertaken by Chicago as a kind of an example of what we can do and how we can welcome uh, new arrivals. And that can really be a powerful accelerator uh, for cities and for towns who need a young population that is ultimately going to be, you know, future uh, engines of those communities. An immediate work authorization? Absolutely. They need immediate work authorization. However, I think it's also uh, important to underscore that there is a lot of work that civil society organizations are trying to do uh, in that period while individuals do not have a work authorization in terms of how they can learn uh, about, you know, uh, jobs in the U.S., uh, labor laws, how they can uh, register their children into school, how they can become citizens uh, in a new environment, hopefully even learn a little bit of English to make that process, that integration po- uh, process possible. But definitely they were able to, the sooner they're able to work, the more they will be able to stand on their own feet uh, and integrate into the U.S. So let's make that poem that we heard, The Great Colossus by Emma Lazarus, a reality and not just some sentimental uh, feelings from a bygone uh, era. Let's make sure that we expand the political imagination and traditional boundaries and foster inspiration for freedom, equity, and justice, just like our dear friend Helena Olena has, and the marvelous organization Alianza Americas, and uh, your your last uh, 30 seconds uh, for us to talk about migration pathways that welcome more migrants. Your thoughts? Well, I think we need to look at asylum law in the United States and consider how it expands and updates to the current realities and challenges that are forcing people to leave, including climate change, as you mentioned earlier. That's part of our list of, uh, of important future action. Well, considering that we're all on Lenape land from where we're broadcasting, this is Building Bridges with and Mimi Rosenberg, and we do just that. We build bridges to educate, agitate, and organize to empower we the people and our sibling immigrants. And thank you for helping us do that, Helena Olea, and support, support, support our uh, immigrant uh, siblings, and those seeking asylum. Absolutely. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure to be in the program. Well, that's all for tonight's episode, but you can always find out more by visiting our Facebook page at laborexpress.org. Again, that's laborexpress.org. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBW Local 1220. Who's expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices, broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. 
The song was our theme was called Workers Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. <laughs> Yeah, this one's for the workers who 